In this episode of Balancing the Christian Life, we talk to Lagarde Smith about digital discipleship and how to study the Bible. Welcome to Balancing the Christian Life. I'm Dr. Kitty Embry. We'll talk about how to be better Christians and better people in the digital age. Let's go. Welcome to the program. This week is the second part of my conversation with law professor and prolific Christian author, Lagarde Smith. As I said last week, the overall conversation was about 90 minutes long, and it took me a while to edit this down to two 30-minute episodes. If you'd like to go back and listen to the first part, you're welcome to do that, although I think this episode stands on its own pretty well. One of the things I appreciate about Lagarde is his fearless attitude toward controversial topics. In this episode, he briefly talks about his newest book, exploring some problems with the theory of evolution. He also talks about his practices, which help him live the Christian life. Listening to this episode just reminded me why I admire him and what a good student the Bible looks like. Pay particular attention to what he does before he writes a book. Also, he talks about a surprising project for a book author and praises a couple of my other guests, Craig DeHutt and Stuart Peck from Appian Media, who I interviewed in episode 17. By the way, those guys have restarted their podcast, Inroads, so be sure you take a listen to that. I also want to give a public thank you to a few people who have financially supported the podcast. This is absolutely a passion project for me, but it still costs something for me to produce, and I'm thrilled to have people interested in keeping it going. Barbara McElwain is someone who has known and supported me my entire life. As a matter of fact, when my mother told my dad she was pregnant with me, it was at the McElwain house. Every conversation I've had with Barbara has ended with, I love you, Barbara. Well, Barbara, I still do. I also got my first Patreon patron, Kevin Hansen. Full disclosure, he's my cousin who lives in the Cincinnati area, but I can't tell you what a thrill it was to get an email saying he was supporting the podcast. That's just cool. Thanks, Kevin. And finally, my mom pitched in to make this possible as well. Yeah, you kind of expect your parents to support you in these kind of endeavors, but I get a phone call from them every Friday and learn how good this week's episode was. For the record, they generally like the interviews a lot, but my mom would like to hear a few more audio essays. Mom, the essays will never go away completely. Don't worry. So let's get back to our interview where Lagarde and I start talking about digital discipleship. I am somebody who is an advocate for digital tools. I recognize that these tools can be used and misused in, in a lot of ways. What do you think about a Christian's use of technology? Well, I have one very specific objection to it, <laughs> and, and that is with sermons, the use of PowerPoint or overheads, <laughs> the way they are used are pointless and powerless. <laughs> Get them out of the way and just talk to people. You know, a pulpit, in terms of communication, standing behind the pulpit is a barrier between you and the people Yes, in, in a kind of way. Well, PowerPoint does the same thing. I mean, if all you're doing is showing them your outline on the screen and going through it, number one, they're looking at it to say, how much longer are we going to have to sit here? He's already done 20 minutes on point A and point B. Right. Now you've got C, D, and E to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it's pointless and powerless. Get rid of PowerPoint and overheads and just preach, brother, preach. Right. Uh, okay, so I'm off that rant. <laughs> uh, but apart from that, as, as I've mentioned, you know, I do Facebook posts. I still don't look at Facebook for any other reason. I just post it there because I know people are listening. Right. And I think that proves your point, that that's where I'm meeting people in the marketplace. I'm where they are. I'm meeting people 
in the Areopagus on Mars Hill, where they are. We have an obligation to go out and meet people where they are, and that's through social media. And it's been amazing to me how that works, because the whole sharing thing, my goodness, I can see in a time of COVID and virus, I can see how virus works and how viral things go. They just multiply in ways that the Lord blessed the the loaves and fishes, and and they multiplied. It's incredible how that happened. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm definitely with you on how we use technology to spread the word. Uh, Another kind of spinoff is that I've written a book on evolution, Darwin's Secret Sex Problem, Exposing Evolution's Fatal Flaw, The Origin of Sex. It's heavy. I tried to write it, get the hay down where the goats could eat it and so forth. Another part of of this communication issue is how do we package things that that are important. But it's still heavy. I'm not going to reach a lot of people through that book. So I'm thinking, how can I reach more people and package it in ways that will be understandable and acceptable? And and you know what I've done? I I don't know if anything's ever going to come from it. It's a long shot. It's a real long shot. But for the past several years, in bits and pieces, in various incarnations, I've been writing a screenplay. It's a story about a Jewish biology professor in an Ivy League university whose students start to question, well, how did sex begin? And how could evolution ever have come up with the first ever male and the first ever female at exactly the same time in exactly the same place, be able to mix the genes together for the first time in ways that asexual replication had never happened? Right. How do you get the first, very first robin pair together? to produce more robins? And how do you get the first oak trees with their unique sexual reproduction capacity and so forth? So this professor starts getting these questions from two of his students. There's more going on in the background. There's he and his wife have a Down syndrome baby, and it raises lots of issues about mutations and all that kind of stuff. But the thrust of it is that he finally comes to see that his vaunted theory of evolution just doesn't work because of the problem that Darwin ignored completely, and that was the origin of sex. Mm-hmm. It's a story that takes us back to narrative, it takes yeah. us back to story, the form that's comfortable for people, and it's in a different medium. If it ever gets out there, it, it would be something that people would watch, and, and I'm almost certain they would be asking questions of their university professor. Well, what about the sex problem? And I think it would drive people in ways that my book cannot. Your whole emphasis on getting out where people are through various media is correct. We've got to do that. I completely agree. And I'm, I'll be interested to see your screenplay. Do you have any ideas when, when that will be published? Published is not it produced is the word. <laughs> yeah, um, you're right. You're right. You're right. You just messed up in your own field there. Um, <laughs> uh, you went back back to old times. I did. Uh, no, I mean, it's. I've had a guy mentoring me who's got some long past experience with Woody Allen, for example, and he's been helping me with this thing. And, and uh, it's, it's about ready to present. But, uh, boy, once we present it, and now here's something else. Here's something else. While we're on this meeting, I have yet to see a Christian film that I think is done 
to the standards that it ought to be done. Oftentimes, the acting is deplorable. The plots are hokey. Mm-hmm. The technical quality is embarrassing. Yeah, uh, They're getting better. They're getting much, much better than they, they did a decade ago. Yeah, But still, the newest releases that I look at, I'm thinking, ah, I do not want my film to look that way. Right. And so even if someone says, we'll produce this film, I don't want it to be less than what culture is used to, what film watchers are used to watching, the quality and, and so forth. You, know, you take a subject like I'm dealing with, it's pretty heavy. I'm trying to make it as palatable as possible. But those of us who are believers trying to get things out there, and, and you had an interview with a couple of guys who are doing some top quality stuff over in Israel and so forth. They're, they're doing high quality stuff. Mm-hmm. And we've got to do the same thing because the old adage of judging books by the cover, the new is you judge media by the, the technical quality of it, too. So that's an admonition to those of us who would use media. Yeah. You're talking about Craig DeHutt and Stuart Peck. Those are sharp guys. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. Most of the faith-based films are substandard Hallmark quality. Yeah. They're trite storylines. They are terrible acting. The production value is good enough, but not great. Yeah, I completely agree. You've done a great job of making the biblical text really accessible, um, and that's that's something that that I appreciate quite a bit. It's clear to me that you're interested in helping people make daily consumption of the Bible a habit. Um, what are some of the habits that you've accumulated over the years that make the most difference to you? What's interesting is, for the guy that put the daily Bible out there for daily consumption, I don't read it daily in the format that I have put it out. (laughs) I have done that, but I tend to want larger chunks. And this would not be a habit, but it is a practice that when I write a book, before I begin writing that book, whatever the topic is, I will go back and read the entire Bible in order not to miss anything. In the old days, we had concordances. Now, speaking of media, you know, we, we look it up and go through some computer to find words and so forth. But you miss things that way mm-hmm. that are not necessarily obviously speaking to the subject you're addressing. I will take a new copy of the Daily Bible and read it from cover to cover with one topic in mind to see what is the whole counsel of God on this topic. So that's a practice, not a habit. And, and by the way, in terms of Habit. I don't really want people to get into a daily Bible reading habit okay. any more than I want them to get into a go-to-church-on-Sunday habit. Now, I'm being a little picky here, but mm-hmm. I'm in the habit of eating. <laughs> but I also <laughs> have cravings for food. I want people to crave the Bible text, not to read it out of habit. It's more of a convenience thing to say, we're busy people, we can't read the the whole Bible every day with one topic in mind. I appreciate all that. But I've made it where we can get nibbles every day and sustain the daily life that we face. My own habits do not include the daily reading in the daily Bible that so many, you know, it's amazing, Kenny. I've got people who have read the daily Bible as a habit, I suppose, now, a dozen times, uh, you know, gone through a dozen or more years. And, and I'm always amazed at that. But they keep coming back over and over and reading it 
each day. I have different kinds of habits. For example, I have a habit of praying with my wife, Ruth, in a certain way. Before dinner every night, we're in the kitchen, and when everything's ready, we hug. We stand and we hug and have a prayer together, not just the normal thank you for the food, but you know who we're remembering for the day and invoking God's blessings on people and so forth. Well, that's a habit that I think is a great marital habit. I have a habit of walking three miles every morning. That's a drudgery habit, unless I'm in England in the hills or on the campus of Swanee University, where we have a little place, and it's glorious. So these are habits that are helpful to me, both physically and spiritually. God gave us habits. He he likes habits. He gave us traditions. He gave us uh, moments to be regular in our prayer life and in our worship life and so forth, because he he knows that that regularity is good for us, just like the regularity of eating. Yeah. But but I I think it's dangerous to get into uh, thinking about our relationship with God, any aspect of it that becomes habitual. Yeah. Merely habitual. I think about the rituals of marriage. I think about the rituals that I go through as, as a professor. That, that all of my classes basically have a starting ritual and an ending ritual. And, and it, it's basically, this is what we're going to do, and this is what we did. That, that idea that, that I, here are my promises to you for this hour, and we delivered on these promises during this hour. Um, and I, for me, it's bookends that make sense that help me assemble the rest of the material. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, and as a professor, I can relate to what you're doing in terms of review, we all need review to remind ourselves of what we've just done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And the anticipation is a roadmap. This is where we're going. Yeah. You you don't get lost in the the woods while you're on the looking at the trees. Yeah, (laughs) that's a communication professor. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, then tell them what you told them. (laughs) That's an old old trope for for, for, for communication professors. yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, because I think one of the things that in all relationships, we need those routines, we need those rituals. And at the same time, we also need the surprise and we also need the longing, uh, because if we don't have the surprise, if we don't have the longing, we have nothing to look forward to. It, it becomes rote. It becomes taken for granted. And I think what you're trying to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is our relationship with God needs to be both intimate and and something that we go after with some gusto because it's that important to us. Is that what you're trying to say? Yes, that eat not necessarily because you know it's good for you and you have to, but you eat because you enjoy it. Yeah. You really crave it. Yeah. When we can get to that point, then that's where hungering and thirsting after righteousness comes in. Richard Dawkins is very outspoken against Christianity. And one of the things that that he has basically leveled against God is this. Obviously, God is a raging narcissist. He keeps on wanting us to tell him why he's so good. And how would you respond to somebody like Dawkins that says something like that? I think it goes back to your very first questions about family and what we learned from family, that parents teach children to say, I love you, back to them. Mm-hmm. Not because they're vain or not because they need that kind of affirmation, but because they're teaching children to love. And eventually that's going to be loving God. When 
and this is kind of a cyclical thing too, when we learn to love God, and he sort of commanded, love me, love me, love me, he's teaching us how to love each other. Yeah. And so it's it's not all the vanity that Richard Dawkins would, you know, Doc, Dawkins will use anything and everything to justify his rejection of God. <laughs> bless his heart and bless his soul. <laughs> he's got it so wrong, and yet, you know, one day Dawkins, this is the side of the rabbit trail, but I, I heard Dawkins talking about the function of the hand, and he named off about a dozen or more ways in which fingers and hands function. And he says, isn't that amazing how evolution could come up with that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's the same argument we would use to say nobody forgot to come up with that, but uh, Richard Dawkins takes things that are so obvious as evidence of God and just twist them around to try to justify his feeble rejection of God, uh, as, as I'm sure we all do on our own level. Yeah, I, th- I think you're exactly right. You've been critical of the New Age movement, uh, obviously, in one of your very first books, In Response to Shirley McLean. You're also pretty critical of some unusual interpretations of Scripture, and we've alluded to several of those. In your opinion, what is essential in Christianity? Uh, well, how do we know if we're approaching the Bible in a fair way or, or coming there with an agenda? Well, the heart of the gospel is what Jesus told us. That's essential, obviously, love God, love fellow man. But uh, no less essential, and this is part of a problem we've got because a lot of people just stop at love God and love fellow man and have dismissed, for example, dismissed Paul's writings almost altogether, thinking that he was homophobic and sexist and yada, yada, yada. But if you believe that he was an inspired writer, then what he wrote about baptism and divorce and so forth is no less essential. These things flow out of loving God and loving fellow man. But something like, for example, baptism, Jesus is the one who acquired it. He's the one who modeled it. He's the one who commissioned it to his disciples as he ascended. That doesn't necessarily reflect love God, love fellow man. It's an interesting thing that God would require us to get ourselves completely wet. You know, for what reason? And you say, well, it symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection. Well, that's great. It does. It does. It's a picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's his PowerPoint, and it's more powerful than ours. <laughs> it's, it's more than that. It's something that you could love God and never in your your life dream up water-based total immersion as a way of expressing your love for God. In fact, is it's almost as if he takes something that is so foreign to the obvious, apart from the picture of death and resurrection. It's so foreign to human thinking. Why, why should we do that? And it's like Naaman saying, why should I go dip myself in this old muddy Jordan River? we got better rivers back home in Syria. It's counterintuitive. But God is almost asking us to do something counterintuitive to really demonstrate back to this essential love God. If you love God, you will obey his commandments. Right. There is a connection there. But we tend to to say certain things are essential and certain things are not, when in reality, they are. 
Right. Speaking of baptism, there are a lot of people who will say, well, certain things are salvation issues and other things are not salvation issues. And I understand what, what they mean. On, on the scale of priority, they're not the same. Certain doctrinal issues are not the same as how do you become a child of God and obey God in order to be entered into the kingdom and become a son or daughter of God. I understand that. But when you get to the point where you start saying baptism is essential, but other things aren't, oh, baby, you are becoming an incredible judge of God's own essentials. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if, if Paul was inspired, and I believe he was, then he was inspired for a purpose to teach us further things about church practice and polity and all that kind of stuff that is still essential because it is God's will. Mm-hmm. How do we approach Scripture without going there with our own agenda? Very difficult, by the way, uh, because usually when we're going there in some kind of a Bible study, as opposed to just reading the Bible through, uh, as in the daily Bible, mm-hmm. we are prone to cherry-picking, we're prone to proof-texting. The real backstop to that is context. The immediate context, you know, what is the verse, what are they talking about in that context? And then the whole counsel of God, how does this fit into all that Scripture has to say? Because we are very tempted to look at either the Gospels and ignore the Old Testament altogether, or to look at Paul's writings and ignore what Jesus himself said, uh, placing more emphasis on Paul. Uh, We kind of sectionalize Scripture and have favorite parts that we draw from, when in reality, Old and New Testament need to be read together, even though the Old is no longer alone authoritative, it has principles abounding Mm -hmm. that will help safely guide someone's understanding of of the New Testament and so forth. So context in both the smaller and the larger field is going to keep us uh, from letting our agendas overrule what we are actually reading. I agree. What have I missed? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just rattling on. I'm rattling on today. That's all right. I'm ranting, ranting and rattling. <laughs> well, you ought to go into academia then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should. I end all my podcasts with a saying from Abigail Adams, which is, be good and do good. What is good? Well, now, see, I'm not so sure that's the way to end the podcast. I'm going to be honest with you. Sure. Because when you say to people, be good and do good, they self-reference. When I was teaching trial practice, when I was teaching criminal law, I put those two things together. In criminal law, we often run into a phrase called the average reasonable person, TARP, the average reasonable person. Mm-hmm. And that is the standard by which certain things like self-defense is judged. Would the average reasonable person have felt it necessary to use deadly force under those circumstances, for example? Mm -hmm. Well, if you present that to a jury, I can guarantee you that 12 out of 12 jurors are going to think they themselves are the average reasonable person. Right. And they put themselves in the shoes, and actually we want them to in a way. They put themselves in the shoes of the defendant. And they say, well, I do that, and they become the average reasonable person. Well, when you say be good, most people, even though they know they're not completely good, even though they know they're fallible, even though they know they're sinful creatures, even though they know they 
They fall short of the glory of God daily, hourly, minute by minute. We are pretty good people. If we thought we weren't, we would probably change most of our ways if we were fundamentally not good people. So when you say be good, every terrorist, including those who, by the time of this broadcast, uh, probably a couple of weeks ago then, have just beheaded 50 people on a soccer field in Africa, mm. they think they're, they're being good and doing good. Every violent demonstrator and looter city streets these days, they have a way of rationalizing, thinking that they are doing good and being good. When you say be good and do good, most people are going to subjectively think that whoever they are, whatever they believe, whatever they do, that it's good. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure you're moving the ball down the field very far by saying that, because true goodness, of course, can only be defined as what God calls good, as against what God would call evil. Mm -hmm. That's the only way that we're going to be able to define what truly is good and what is not good. Good answer. <laughs> I completely agree with what you're saying there. I'll have to rethink the end of the podcast then. <laughs> um in a way, it, it, in a way, it takes us back to that value. You have values, yeah. You know, and everybody's values is, you know, it's okay. Whatever your values are, you ought to have values. Well, everybody agrees with that. Yeah, it doesn't advance the ball to what is good with God. No, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. All right. If somebody wanted to find you or if they wanted to read uh, some of your books, or how could they find you? Well, it goes back to the digital thing. You know, go to Amazon and uh, go to my webpage, uh, LaGardeSmith.com. Wow, I even have a webpage. Can you that? <laughs> I can. Well, Lagarde, thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate this. That's been fun. Well, I hope you learned something from Lagarde. He's a deep thinker and someone I truly admire. I've heard it's not always a good thing to meet your heroes, but this was better than I could have expected. Lagarde, thank you so much for what you said and what you do. You are a true blessing. I've also got several interviews already recorded. Next week, I'll talk to Mark Roberts. He's also an author and a guy who has an interesting take on digital discipleship. He says digital discipleship is not an interruption, but a disruption. By the way, I agree. I've also interviewed preacher and podcaster Edwin Crozier, and wow, our conversation was also about 90 minutes long and could have gone much longer. I know you'll enjoy that. If you're interested in supporting the podcast financially, I've got a link to the Patreon account in the show notes, and I figured out how to give patrons coffee mugs for supporting the podcast. You can see the information over there about it. I'm also thinking about starting a Facebook group for the show. Finally, my website, balancingthechristianlife.com, just made a way to put reviews for the show there. For years, the only way to leave a review was on Apple Podcasts. And as an Android user, I always felt like I was left in the cold. But now, Android users can be heard too. So I would love to start reading a review every week just to say thank you for the support. So, taking what Lagarde said to heart, let me say until next week... Come near to God, and he will come near to you.